So I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also interview special guests involved in writing and publishing. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. I'd like to say a quick thank you to our Patreon supporters who make this show possible. Patrons receive perks like hearing me eat potato chips, even when I'm nowhere around, or eating potato chips. And if you're not a patron already, you can check out all the other perks and exclusive content over at patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Fun fact, I called this podcast so I'm writing a novel dot 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 rather than so I'm writing a sword and sorcery novel or something along those lines, because my hope was that if it went well and I really enjoyed doing it and it went on long enough, eventually I'd be writing another novel and going by how my writing has been in my life before I started writing the sword and sorcery novel, which I'm still working on and we'll be talking about before we dive old age, don't worry. But yes, going by how my writing has progressed in my life before the sword and sorcery novel, odds are reasonable that while I might keep writing sword and sorcery, I would want to write a novel in another genre entirely. And in fact, something that's been on my mind since either 2017 or 2014, depending on how you want to interpret that going through my notes, which again, I'll talk about that later when it makes sense to do so in detail. I have been really thinking a lot about writing positive science fiction, not utopian science fiction, not like saccharine. Hey, what if everything just kind of worked out because we waved a magic wand and uh, nanotechnology dealt with everything? <laughs> you know, something like that. <laughs> but I'm thinking more like what I guess some people would call um, social fiction, like Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed or more recently Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry of the Future. There's a part of me that really wants to write and read more of community driven rather than like lone hero style stories where people are working together to find solutions for the big problems that have us all kind of worried now. <laughs> well, there is a subgenre which seems very much concerned with that called solar punk. And I thought, why not keep magazine month going another month? I mean, it's it can be February the rest of the year. Oh, oh boy. I hope not. Actually, weather-wise, I'm in Canada. Anyway, yeah, I thought it made sense to reach out to Solar Punk Magazine to talk with one of their editors, Abrianna Tuller, about the magazine in general and the subgenre in particular. Will I continue to discuss sword and sorcery? Of course I will. But for now, let's go over to Abrianna to discuss solutions and solar punk. Here I am with Abrana. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Uh, doing well. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and by us, I mean me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, let's let's get into it. Could you please tell uh, listeners, as if they have never heard of this before, a little bit about the origin of the term solar punk and how your magazine defines it? Wow. Um, I'm so honored to be here today. And I'm always excited to talk about Solar Punk Magazine because we do so many awesome things. So Solar Punk basically is like a sub branch of um, science fiction, where it's more like speculative fiction to where it encompasses um, like environmental themes. We focus on like social justice themes 
and rebelling against racism, sexism, things like that. And so we encompass also like different cultures. We believe in having stories from like own voices. It gives an opportunity for authors who feel like maybe they're underrepresented or not able to like write you know, to major publications. It gives an opportunity to be able to send stories to us and to have an audience for unique stories. Okay, cool. And um, I'm just kind of curious, could you sort of highlight and underline one part of it? Uh, where does the punk uh, come in? Because you do see sort of, you know, this punk and that punk thrown around a lot, but I'm always kind of curious where that half of the term applies. What would you say is punk about Southern punk? For me in particular, I find punk is like you're rebelling against an establishment. And even if that means that you're solo doing it, you're fighting for a good cause. Now, most of our stories will have it to where the community comes to like a realization and then they rebel against like a government or an entity or a cause that's either harming the environment as harm harming a group of people. But that's how I've always seen it as a punk is a rebellious person, the rebel against an establishment or a bad cause. Awesome. I like it. And it's interesting to hear you mention community because one thing I'm kind of curious about is um, would you say the solo punk stories tend to resist like the lone hero narrative that they tend to be built more around communities? So it depends on the story. Like some of the stories, um, the character might be more of like a high profile person that works in a system that, you know, over time they discover like, hey, I don't really like this and they rebel against it. But then there's also those stories that are very own voices and you might have like a small community member or like a character like in a family and they're forced to live with a society that's not great and it's either harming the environment or there's some kind of social justice cause that they find that they need to overcome. And sometimes it's both. Sometimes the authors manage to like tie in both, which is always awesome to see too. Okay, cool. Yeah, I guess it's hard for me not to think about that because I've been kind of swimming in uh, fantasy in general, sword and sorcery in particular. And you run into like the chosen one narrative a lot over there. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I find as I get older, I have less and less patience for that. And I'm more and more interested in uh, things along the lines of what you're talking about uh, with people sort of, uh, you know, maybe awakening, but still being just kind of a member of the community. They don't have like, you know, the, the hand of God or something else uh, standing in for God, like, you know, touching down upon them and making them special. Uh, they make themselves special and they work with others to make the community special. Like, yeah, I think it is an interesting and necessary label, but I would love to hear you share with people why solar punk feels necessary like it says on your site the term has been around since the early 2000s but it's kind of having a moment more recently so, so yeah what would you say makes solar punk a necessary label why not just call it science fiction i think what makes it a necessary label is because just looking at the science fiction genre overall one thing that we've found is that sometimes genres when they first start out they have principles that don't necessarily align with the current um, society or they have principles that are actually more offensive in our modern day society. Like we've seen this in like romance too. We've also seen this in, you know, the mystery in the horror sector where we go back and read older stories and we're like, oh, wow, that definitely <laughs> wouldn't cut it now. That wouldn't be appropriate. I've heard a few things about this H.P. Lovecraft guy. Can you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Where you yeah. go back and you read it and you're like, wow, that was really crazy i can't believe that you know that flew under the radar you know and people like accepted this and were okay with this uh, but solar punk especially right now is very important because what you're coming to find is especially in the social justice sector we need representation sometimes people can't always go out and like fight and rally and protest and things like that so sometimes the protest comes in the form of literature and we find that when people read it 
sometimes they're more enamored and more able to act on things and more willing to act on things because they're reading it and they're like, you know what, someone else shares my view and look at this person being courageous. So now it's my opportunity to um, go out and do what I need to do. And then it also offers like a form of protection in ways um, because when you go out and you protest, you know, people can see your face, but when you're writing, not everyone can always see it, but you're able to share what you need to say. And sometimes that's very important. I like that. And actually, you know, I'm going to leave ahead to a later question because I think uh, you've kind of laid me up there. Um, you know, would you say solar punk tales are meant to do more than quote unquote, just entertain, are they perhaps meant to be instructional or, you know, cause I, I, I'm very wary of using the phrase message fiction because I only ever hear that used in kind of a derogatory fashion, you know, oh, somebody's trying to shove their opinions down my throat, which is funny. Cause like nobody made you read the book or whatever, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, like, would you, would you say there, there's more going on with, uh, solar punk tales, uh, they, they have, a an additional purpose beyond being a thrilling read. I would definitely um, say for the most part, about at least 90% of our stories definitely have like a morale or a message behind them. And they're trying to engage the reader to think and to find a sense of hope because that's the thing about solar punk. We want hopeful stories or we want a story where it may not necessarily end on a good note, but what it's saying is that the solution that the author came up with is a possibility if we take action. I think that's the main focus behind the stories is for people to be excited, to want to take action, to prevent, you know, these catastrophes that we see in these dystopian stories from actually becoming a reality. And that's the underlying uh, purpose of our stories is the hope factor. Now, we do have some stories that, you know, for the most part are very entertaining. Actually, all of our stories are entertaining, but there's very few that I've read that didn't have a morale and weren't written as a way to provide like you input on a very serious situation. Because what I come to find is a lot of our authors, especially sometimes they think about environmental social issues that you wouldn't have realized were prevalent, but they are. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it special because we have writers from all over the world that contribute so things that might not affect us here in the U.S. or let's just say in the western part of the world, it might be a very huge problem in the eastern part of the world. So it's great to always get that input from people. I think that's really important, that sort of uh, the hope side of it. And yeah, like I say, not literally instructional necessarily, but just kind of saying, like, hey, here's some solutions we can explore. You know, before I uh, got on this call with you, uh, someone shared one of those classic, you know, here's why publishing's dying and it's bad and everything's bad with books. It's all bad. Uh, you know, articles. And I at first was kind of annoyed because I just felt like, yeah, okay, I've heard, I've heard some things are bad. But I'm good. Thank you. But it saved itself a bit at the back end where it was like, okay, and here's some actual like actionable things that people can do. And I think that half of it is so very important. Um, you know, now I, I can see maybe some common pitfalls people might fall into when trying to write a solo product story. I know uh, some people I've heard say, again, in fiction in general, people, some people are wary of quote unquote message fiction, uh, being ham fisted, you know, whatever. And then there's also the feeling of like, well, is this just going to be like a saccharine utopia where everything's solved by putting a few solar panels on top of a thing? Um, what would you say are some common pitfalls writers fall into when trying to write solar punk? And what are some signs beyond basic craft of a strong solar punk story? So I will say, especially as a writer myself, that solar punk is a very hard genre to write. And the reason why I say that is because um, a lot of times people are used to dystopian stories mm -hmm. and they're not used to like writing that hopeful ending because sometimes the writer themselves doesn't feel there is a hopeful ending to be had. 
especially when it comes to social justice issues, because we see a system, we see it operating, and the system might have been around for thousands of years or hundreds of years. And we see that even though people are fighting for it, that change is not happening because the establishment is much bigger than those people that are trying to, you know, bring about that resolution. So what I often will tell people um, when they're writing solar punk is don't think of it as a utopia because the thing is, even though utopias are great in the sense that, you know, it means a perfect society, it means that we're without problems, because of the huge human nature part, we want to get as close to utopia as possible, but it's not going to be physically possible because we all have our own ideas and beliefs and systems that we feel are correct. So what I often tell people is imagine what you would like to be resolved. Like think of that, that one issue that is very pressing to you, whether it's an environmental or it's a social issue. Think of how you would want the world to be. Think of a solution that you feel would actually be feasible and then write it. Because that's the thing, too, is some solutions, you know, our writers are all really creative and I'm really glad that they write creative solutions. But I find that some of our audience are realists. And so they may look at that and be like, oh, that's a really creative solution. But I don't think that's possible. But for those those real solutions where that that small character is like doing something and there's a science, current science to back it up to show that it's feasible then they're like, you know what? Yeah, you're right. That is absolutely possible. So I just tell people to like look inside and determine what they want to write and don't look at, like definitely read previous issues of ours, but don't look at that as a guide for what you should specifically write because your story needs to be told and you shouldn't necessarily try to mirror someone else. It makes it like false for yourself and the audience will pick up on that. Yeah, awesome. Okay, and so what would you say some of the uh, the strengths of like what makes a really strong solar punk story again beyond basic you know craft? So I would say a definite um, strong solar punk story, at least from my point of view, because um, Moshe, our fiction editor, you know, overall as a fiction department, we look for certain things, um, but we both have different sort of ideas sometimes of what we fully feel like a solar punk story encompasses. I am all for the cultural likes you know, own voice stories to where they show like authentic um, characters embraced in their culture and might be trying to fix things either internally within their culture or fix the world's perspective of their culture. Um, when it comes to the social justice stories where we see like a lot more of the rebellion, I really love those. I just love to see that definitely that underdog character that's persevering. I do like to see them experience some challenge because that makes it realistic. And also, you know, overcoming whatever that challenge is. And they may not necessarily solve it by the end of the story, but they present it, what they know the solution is, and they're showing that they're taking action against it. I like that. I really like the the active characters who are not necessarily, you know, saving the world, you know, with a capital W, like at the end of an Avengers movie, but they're making positive change and taking steps forward, yeah. I, uh, I'm curious, there's an aspect of Solar Punk I'm uncertain about, because I, I, I have not read as much as I would have liked. Do you find it tends to uh, be, or even maybe needs to be, uh, told in a relatively near future setting? You know, because I'm, I'm thinking about uh, something, uh, you know, author and futurist, uh, Jaron Lanier said, where he feels every time he reads a sci-fi story where there's like a huge break between the present and the future, you know, those kind of stories where like it's in a future and they always refer to the war or the event or the thing, you know, that's just like a big blank space between us now and, you know, the characters in their future. He feels that makes that future fake because, and, and whatever solutions it offers less interesting because you can't see how we got to that. 
right? Because you've got that big break in the middle. So yeah, I mean, how, I'm curious how you feel about that. And, and would you say solar punk in general tend, needs to be near future to serve its purpose? Um, yes, I would definitely love to see narratives that are, are near future, especially because that near future, as you mentioned, is going to be here before we know it. And um, some of the problems that we're facing right now will definitely be a bigger problem in the near future if we don't handle them. So, I mean, in terms of that narrative, I can definitely understand where they're coming from in terms of when you're in the far future, you know, it doesn't seem as realistic sometimes. And you're just wondering, like, how these people manage to survive these problems for that long. So, yeah, I definitely could see that panning out very well for an author to write those kinds of stories for a solo punk yeah, magazine. Because I, I got to be honest, I kind of feel the same same way as Jeremy Lanier. But whenever I read a far future story and it's like, we uh, dealt with, uh, I don't know, climate change with nanotechnology. And you're like, all right, what does that mean? <laughs> like, it just, it always sounds kind of like, uh, you know, we uh, we said uh, the magic word and the thing went away. And so <laughs> I just, yeah, I, I personally find that far less interesting and I have a much harder time getting my teeth into it. So part of what intrigues me about Solopunk is that it is so, you know, solution focused. And, you know, like I said, I, I think it, it seems to me as an outsider, at least, that it would lean toward near future. Uh, so we can draw the line between our present problems and possible solutions and, you know, in that near future. Right. Um, and also actually kind of reminds me of a William Gibson quote that's interesting. I think about optimism perhaps and, uh, and how we see the future, you know, he was born, oh gosh, I want to say like 1940, somewhere in that neck of the woods. Right. So growing up for him in the 20th century, people would talk about the 21st century, like that's the future. Oh my God. You know, like 21st century. It's, and it just set lots of stories in that period, which we are now living in ourselves. Um, you know, and I'm 40, I'm, I'm old enough to remember a little bit of that talk on the back end uh, of the 20th century. Uh, but now we're in the 21st, we don't talk about the 22nd century, the way the 20th talked about the 21st. You know, we don't, generally speaking, I, I, you, know, you don't see a lot of awe and wonder and oh my goodness, you know, the year 2100 is going to be an amazing transformative thing. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that maybe has to do with uh, a change in how we feel about the future, perhaps because things are, are looking dodgy in a few different ways. You know, would you say that maybe part of Solar Punk's whole thing is trying to get people to feel more optimistic about the future? Uh, so maybe start considering it even a little further ahead than the next like five, 10, 20 years, if I can turn my last question inside out. <laughs> yeah, I definitely would feel that that's one of our main focuses with Solar Punk magazine is to look at it from a hopeful and an optimistic point of view. And when I say optimistic, I don't mean like, you know, that everything for the most part will be positive because with change, um, you're going to have a lot of resistance. It can be exhausting, but you have to power through. But um, for the most part, yes, we definitely are pushing for, you know, here's the future. We do have the time and the effort and somewhat of the resources to move things forward and to change it. And so we want to inspire people to do that through our fiction, our nonfiction and our poetry. And we hope that um, people will read the magazine. They will take in the ideas and then they'll move forward, whether it's ideas that we've presented or ideas that they think of. We just definitely want to have some kind of progress. All right. Sounds good. So I appreciate that you were not there uh, sort of, you know, the very, very start of it. But what could you tell us, uh, Irana, about the origin story of Solar Punk Magazine? Like, it's a pretty new publication. How's, how's it come about? So um, Solar Punk Magazine started about two years ago. There was a couple of us that joined Justine. And we met because we were all virtual for the most part because we're all in different areas. And 
we actually framed based on the general definition of what solo punk is, what we wanted to see in our nonfiction, our poetry, and our fiction. And the common idea that we came up with is that we wanted hope to be the bottom line of the story. We wanted people to feel comfortable talking about social justice issues. We wanted people to feel comfortable talking about environmental issues. We wanted people to talk about their cultures and to frame some line of respect around them because um, that's a common problem that we've seen is that people feel comfortable talking about their cultures and they get shut down. Or they talk about environmental issue that they feel is pressing and they get shut down. We wanted people to have an avenue to be able to talk and to feel free to talk and to be able to express their creativity. That was just really important to us. And also um, Justine's thinking originally behind the magazine concept was that there's quite a few like science fiction magazines, but there's very few that focus on speculative fiction aspects. And there's very few that really have a hopeful ending to them. A lot of them are more like dysotopian based or they may have the rebellion base, but it's still like rooted in dystopian. And so we wanted to stray away from that because um, dystopian fiction, although it's I've read some really great dystopian fiction, it doesn't have a hopeful ending. Sometimes it leaves the reader feeling depressed. Sometimes it leaves the reader feeling there's no solution at all. Even though the purpose of dystopian um, fiction from what I read is to scare you enough to take some action. But for some people, they want to escape that because they feel like our current climate is dystopian. So we wanted fiction, nonfiction, and poetry to not only help the reader escape, but to prompt them to take some action. So that's what we were thinking about with the origins of it. Yeah, I think that's compelling too. I, I think a lot about uh, dystopian fiction and how, like, yeah, in theory, it's there to kind of scare us into action, right? Saying, like, if you don't get cracking on X, Y, Z, it's going to get this bad, maybe. Um, but I, I've heard pretty convincing arguments that it can also kind of numb you and it can kind of just make you think, oh, so terrible things are inevitable, <laughs> like, which just, uh, you know, doing kind of the opposite of what the authors maybe, um, are planning. And of course, you know, sometimes even the authors get bummed out, right? Like, you know, which is a very glib way of framing it, I suppose, but I'm thinking about how, uh, Octavia Butler, I think said more than once that she didn't end up finishing Parable of the Sowers, uh, the trilogy because it was just so damn bleak, <laughs> like the setting. Uh, I, I wish she had lived longer and, and written more in general, but also I wonder what would have what happened if perhaps she had tried uh, writing a, a solar punk novel or something in that vein. I think that would have been fascinating. Um, but yeah, anyway, sorry, I'm going on. I'm digressing a little bit as we, as we do on the show. Now, I'm no stranger to launching a publication built around big ideas. You know, I, I we were talking a little bit about this before. Like, I've just launched a magazine where, like, you know, sword and sorcery, but with, like, a strong DEI remit and trying to, like, push boundaries of storytelling, et cetera. I'm curious, how are you guys managing the, you know, there's the big ideas and then there's and the storytelling. And then like, how are you managing the harsh realities of financing and marketing the magazine, uh, broadly speaking? Like you guys just did a Kickstarter, right? Yeah. So Justin is a powerhouse when it comes to like fundraising. Um, that's actually his background. Um, he was a, he was a teacher at one point too. Um, so he's very multi-talented. Um, he runs a lot of our fundraising. And um, what usually happens is um, based on that very first magazine that we published about two years ago, he has an idea of how much it will cost to run every issue. So he calculates that and then he comes up with different like themes and different 
um, strategies and PR like things to put out for um, Kickstarters, but he's very good at fundraising. And then um, internally, we usually have a discussion about what we want to see into the next year because we do like do research. We look at other science fiction magazines and see what the trends are for what people are writing, what people are into. And then we compare it to what we've already done. So for the most part, uh, we had a BIPOC issue last year, which I named Colorful Roots. And the engagement was very huge on that. So we decided to do that again this year. So we just we do a lot of like comparing trends, doing research, interacting with people. Um, for instance, we had a conference that was sponsored by the publisher Android Press, which publishes our magazine. And uh, since you're interested in the sword and sorcery and fantasy, they also um, publish like fantasy and solar punk novels and things like that. But through the conference, people gave us a lot of input, too, which was great. And so we will usually use those combination of things to like help run the magazine and just really great communication amongst the, the staff of the magazine helps, too. So just in a nutshell, that's how we pretty much like run it. Cool. Hey, yeah, with uh, with my magazine, we have a private uh, Discord where me and the staff all just are chatting all the damn time. Is that something you guys have going on? There's like a never-ending group chat or how do you organize that? Yeah, part? so we use uh, Slack oh, yeah. to communicate, especially because we're all over the place. We have people on the East Coast, our poetry editors out of the country. Justine and I are on the West Coast. So it just helps us with communicating ideas, with asking questions and things like that for the most part that's how we communicate okay cool yeah have you ever been able to get most of you in the same place or has that not happened yet so we will meet individually in terms of departments usually and then in terms of the overall magazine we have met in one place a couple of times like uh, when we had a conference when we had our initial like I guess you would call it like a grand opening, but you know, for our magazine publication, like when we had our first issue, the magazine held like a huge like virtual party and we were all there and we had like awards and things like that. But yes, we were able to like meet in the like via like Google meets and things like that to see each other. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was just saying that I'm in a similar position. I'm, I'm in Toronto, but I'm the only US sword sorcery guy there. Uh, the others are in various parts of America and elsewhere. And we've done the virtual thing, which is fun. We're, we're all still kind of like, Already, we're kind of hoping maybe one day we'll all be in the same room physically. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that's definitely a hope, too, is to be able to um, see the other group members in person. So I'm I'm definitely, like, brainstorming so that we can all maybe have, like, you know, like a solar punk, like, staff reunion or something like that where we all meet in a common place. Or, or who knows? Maybe even, like, a, a solar punk convention. You ever think, I mean, that's that's obviously a hell of a thing to think about after only operating for two years. But do you think that down the line that might be something kind of fun? Oh, yeah. I think that would be like an awesome thing to have. I think that's kind of like possibly what we might be ramping up to because we have had like a huge conference before. But for the most part, it wasn't in person yet. But I mean, that would be pretty awesome to have one in person in the future. Well, I hope it happens. So if I can come off the magazine for a second back to Solopunk and Stories and maybe make it a little more personal to you specifically, Abrahanna, what's the first Solar Punk story you remember really grabbing you? And why did it do that? How did it do that? So there was one story and the way we came about it is we, uh, so part of our Kickstarter is we offer like incentives from a personal incentives from the editors. And so this particular one was a critique from one of the editors. And oftentimes I will do like critiques for people. If I find a story that has like really great promise and I'm like, hey, you know, I really love this. Here's some suggestions. You know, you're more than welcome to resubmit in a, a future time period. And so I read this story and essentially 
I loved it because it was an Asian owned voice and she has a connection with her grandmother and me, I love familial stories. And I loved it because she didn't hold back on that Asian ancestry. I loved it. I loved that she packed so much of that Asian ancestry into it. She kept the descriptions authentic. She kept the, you know, the talking back and forth between the, the characters authentic. And I loved that not only with that, but she showed respect to her own culture and she showed how people can respect her culture. And I've just never forgotten that story. And we actually ended up publishing it after she had her Kickstarter incentive and I critiqued it. She ended up submitting it. And I want to say we published it in our BIPOC issue um, last year, but that was, that's a story I will never forget. It was impeccable. Cool. And then looking uh, further behind, are there any major works, novels, short stories, you know, novellas, whatever, which predate the term solar punk that you'd recommend to fans of solar punk? Honestly, I am not quite sure on that. One thing that came to mind, in case an example might help, like I was thinking maybe uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Pacific Edge, you know, part of his trilogy of books about different versions of California. And this was what about one where like, essentially environmentalism was the driving factor in policy decisions in America and it centered on a small town and they forged it through that. So I was like, maybe that's solar punk before solar punk. I don't know. Uh, what do you think? I mean, that's definitely possible. I have not read him. I have his book on my shelf, but I have not read it. So I apologize. No worries. I guess it just depends on... Now, here's the thing. I could probably tell you more nonfiction solar punk than fiction. And the reason why is because even though I work for Solar Punk Magazine, I'm actually just breaking into reading more of that genre myself outside of our um, submissions queue. But for me personally, I read a lot of books on like revolutionaries. So I've been reading a lot of like Marcus Garvey lately. I've read uh, Malcolm X in the past. I've read Frederick Douglass. And for me, those are definitely from the social justice standpoint, definitely the solar punk before the solar punk. Because they're talking about um, social and racial uh, justice issues, prompting people to act, prompting people within those affected communities to what they need to do to get the um, the type of environment that they need. So for me, nonfiction wise, that would definitely be the solar punk before the solar punk. And how about the uh, environmental science sort of side of things? Uh, are there any particular fiction or nonfiction texts that you think would fit within that? So nonfiction wise, uh, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring. I definitely recommend that one. She was definitely a, a solar punk revolutionary, I feel, before the solar punk. Uh, in terms of fiction, um, even though Stephen King's more of a horror writer, uh, he does have some fantasy novels. And there's a couple where, like, there's a book called Cell, where he talks about technology and how it affects people. And as odd as that sounds, like, environmentally, like, it, it makes a huge impact, I feel. Because when we get rid of our cell phones, like, where do they go? They go to, they most likely go to a landfill, which impacts, you know, the soil and impacts the environment around us. They're, it's toxic. You know, or they go further afield to places where uh, people burn electronics to get the gold and copper out, right? So you've got people like burning lots of plastic and stuff, yeah. Yeah, and so um, he's also talking about it from a social standpoint, how we're tied to our technology, how we forget to interact with our families, our friends, to make important memories. So that book right there, Cell by Stephen King, I would definitely encourage people to read. It doesn't fully talk about environmental aspects. It's more of like a social um, look, but you know, you can definitely make implications as to the environmental impact of cell phones and technology as well, based off of it. Okay. Uh, so 
what if the world was a kinder, better place <laughs> can counterintuitively be a very controversial stance, it seems, with some people. <laughs> I'm just wondering, you know, as a, as a magazine with a, a somewhat, you know, clearly politically informed uh, agenda, do you find you guys have to deal with like a lot of trolls and harassment and crap like that online? Uh, and if so, how do you deal with that? Um, yes, unfortunately so. Um, so the magazine, we have representatives of different races of different uh, sexualities and uh, political standings and, and views and standpoints. And so oftentimes um, we'll post like on our Twitter, especially um, issues that we feel like need discussion um, just to get input from people to determine if, you know, we might have a theme around that issue or see if we can, you know, get works for nonfiction on it. And oftentimes we've had to either post it and have our comments closed or, you know, we might go more towards like our discord or something like that because people have been disrespectful to the point where we're just like, wow, um, we understand that everyone has their own views. But one thing we don't tolerate, we don't tolerate bigotry. We don't tolerate slurs. Um, and unfortunately, we've seen some of that with different programming and things that we've had. And it's it's pretty heartbreaking, to be honest. It almost got to one point where we were like, well, we'll still publish, but it almost got to the point where we're like, do we really want to really interact with people anymore? Because if this is what we're getting, we don't know that we want to really have much interaction outside of um, people submitting to the magazine. So usually, you know, we, we keep a straight face, but in terms of like controversial topics, we might share, but there's certain measures we've taken in place to limit interaction because um, unfortunately we have gotten a lot of um, unsavory reactions to things. Yeah, I, I kind of guessed you might, and I'm sorry that, that I was right. It's really hard, I think, because, you know, so much of how publications, especially sort of what you might think of as indie ones like, like yours or mine, um, they have to interact with the public via social media. It's the only real, well, not the only way, but it's definitely the main way for building audiences now, right? Like as much as people have, you know, quite rightly uh, complained about Twitter, particularly under its current owner. <laughs> um, you know, I, I had my real eye-opening yeah, I had a real eye-opening experience with our Kickstarter where uh, our third biggest source of funding was Twitter. So we do we walk away from it because we have a bad day with trolls? Like, we can't really, right? Not if we want to keep the, the lights on. So, yeah, it's this kind of conundrum that I think we all have to um, navigate uh, if we're going to try and say something, quote-unquote, you know, with our publications. Uh, I wish I had a perfect answer, and I, I'm hoping somebody can give it to me one of these days. One of my guests will tell me. <laughs> So like um, one of the things we do, um, because me and a couple of other members have experience in PR, like my background is actually journalism, mm -hmm. and I'm also a teacher right now. So when it comes to when we're going to post something controversial, we'll actually talk about it first. And sometimes me or the other members that are well-versed in just media in, in general, we'll have a discussion and come up with a statement usually that we'll post on our social media. And then we talk about just like how, you know, if certain interactions happen, what is our policy? How are we going to um, resolve it? It doesn't happen 100% of the time. I mean, there are pretty good d discussions and stuff that we do have. But for those instances, we just simply like close the comment because you know, just like you were saying, Twitter is a huge network. I mean, I've met quite a few people um, in the writing community on Twitter. So it's not necessarily a social media outlet. You can just let go. It's a, it's a huge one. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's definitely a balancing act. 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, Twitter's how this interview happened, right? I was looking to see who our new followers were, you know, during the Kickstarter. And I, and I saw your name and I was like, oh, interesting. And I clicked through and here we are. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, lots of lots of positive stuff can come from it. Honestly, I found it, aside from the funding thing I mentioned, I have found it the number one way uh, until recently. Discord, I think, is starting to take over a little bit. But, um, but definitely for the longest time, the number one way that I could actually reach out and get in touch with people that otherwise might be difficult to get a hold of. Uh, particularly, oh, you know, because yeah. writers might be behind uh, a wall of their agent or their publisher, but they all have opinions on Twitter. <laughs> and then, so you can at least say hi on there and then, you know, take it from there to have them on as a guest on your podcast or interact with them in whatever other way. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, what can we all do, I suppose, except keep wrestling with it and hope that somebody makes something a little better. I'm, I'm optimistic for Hive. I think if Hive can get a desktop client going like ASAP, like that one seems kind of exciting. I'm not, Mastodon hasn't really done it for me. Have you played over there much? No, uh, to be honest, I'm very, like, I guess, brand dedicated. So I'm on Facebook and Twitter. And I have, like, a YouTube and an Instagram that I haven't really been on. I have to create the content for those. But for the most part, like, once I find a social media that I like, I pretty much stay even if it has its challenges. So I'm kind of afraid to, like, venture out to those. And get to them and restart and be like, whoa, I really don't like this. Um, because then I've like dedicated so much time and effort to it. And then also, um, because I'm a writer myself and there's certain communities I follow, like the horror and the um, romance community and some of the science fiction co- community. There's certain communities where certain social media outlets, they're just like, oh no, we don't really like that group. So as a romance writer, when I see very popular like romance authors be like, you know, we tried this outlet and they are not romance positive. I'm like, oh, let me stay away from that because that's definitely not going to be beneficial for me. Yeah, yeah. And it's true. You know, I mean, there's almost, um, I don't want to go as far as to say sunk cost fallacy, but it's like if you, you know, if you're if you're being told by all angles of publishing, like yeah, build your platform, build your platform, and you're like okay, and so you invest like hours and years building a following on say Twitter, and then oh I don't know, let's say it gets a new owner that looks like he's gonna break it sooner or later, <laughs> it can be <laughs> discouraging and hard to want to go to another platform that is owned by you know somebody, some guy, some whoever. Uh, and start putting in the work to build a platform on that again, when you don't know what is going to happen to it, you know, a year or two from now in terms of uh, how it's run or ownership. It is. And uh, Twitter, for the most part, about 90% of my experience on there has been pretty positive. I mean, I actually got invited to write for an anthology through there. Just as you messaged me, I got um, asked to do another interview with someone. And then I've been invited as a podcast through there. Um, me working through Solarpunk Magazine, I've been able to interact with people I may not have been if I was just, you know, just writing and solo and by myself. And then the thing is, too, Twitter provided me with the opportunity to interview and to get hired for Solarpunk Magazine. So there's definitely been a lot of blessings and opportunities. So even though I definitely don't agree with our current owner of it and some of the stuff that's happening I will definitely say for the most part, you know, Twitter's still somewhat pretty solid. I mean, there's there's definitely issues on there that can be improved, but it's definitely not a platform to take lightly. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Okay, so, I mean, moving on from uh, the, the ups and downs of social media, I was wondering, could you just sort of share with me what is, in terms of what Solarpunk Magazine's plans are for the coming year, what has you really excited? I mean, I'm sure to some degree, all of it, but is there like a particular theme issue or is there something that you're really hoping to see uh, show up in your submissions? Like, oh, I really want someone to tackle X, Y, Z, you know, that'd be great. Like what's, what gets you pumped? What gets you really excited for, for what is to come in the near future, the next year or so of the magazine? 
So I'm really excited actually for two different themed issues that we have this year. Um, we have the BIPOC issue again happening this year. And then we also have a new issue called Solar Punk Myths. I'm so excited for that because I love mythology and it would be so cool to see like what people come up with in terms of that. And so um, we found that the writers that submit to us, the crea- the creativity is just astounding. And every single submission window, the writing just gets more and more impressive. Not that it wasn't before, but just the, the things that people come up with, it just blows my mind. And so I'm just really excited to see the new submissions that come in for those particular issues and to see what writers come up with. Because I have to admit, being a fiction editor is by far like the best thing ever (laughs) because I love reading stories and I love connecting with new people. Yeah, I'm still just doing commissions. Like I said, I'm terrified of uh, tackling slush piles, but maybe I should do that sooner (laughs) rather than later. You're making it sound actually pretty nice. And the connecting with people thing, I'm with you. I really, really like it. I really like the opportunity to also treat writers the way I would always like to be treated when I'm submitting somewhere, you know what I mean? Or <laughs> working with an editor. It's, it's kind of nice to be able to turn around to the other side of the table and be like, okay, what would I have liked in my past interactions? And then like pay that forward to, you know, the people you're working with. Absolutely. Do you mind elaborating a little bit on what Solar Punk Myths is? I'm a little, it sounds intriguing, but I'm having a hard time in my mind seeing like, so how, do you, how does like say Greek mythology, if it's to pick something out of the air, blend with uh, you know near future sort of solutions for environmental and societal problems. How does that come together? Okay, so we read a story by a Hawaiian writer, and essentially what they did was they wrote the past, and they wrote the now, and then they wrote what they expected for the future. And we figured that if we're, we're writing about the now, we're writing about the distant future, and we're already talking about the past, why not highlight myths, whether they're true myths based on a culture or something that the author just totally created, that impact decisions that we are facing now and how we can look to the past, correct our mistakes to have a better future. That was our thinking for um, the Solipokmus issue, is that we often reflect far in the future. Why not look back at the past, analyze the past, come up with why things happened so that we can fix the future? Because a common saying that we have in education is that when you don't study your history, it's bound to repeat itself. Yep. And so that same principle applies for any of the genres. It applies for romance, horror, science fiction, fantasy. When you don't look at the past, especially as a writer, you know, writing on something and not doing your research and not studying the history of writers that came before you and that were prolific and then, you know, are running into current issues now because of how they wrote, what they're writing, you're bound to fall into the same traps. So we figured with that thinking, that's also bound to happen with environmental and social issues. When we don't reflect on the past, we don't find out why these creation, you know, what happened in these creation stories to bring about this current result. Then we're bound to make the same mistakes in the future and the results and the outcomes that we want won't happen. Yeah, that's okay. That's really interesting to me. And I am not an expert on this, but it does remind me of some things I have heard said to me by people with uh, more knowledge on it about how, like, you know, we might even find some good solutions if we go looking back into the past. In particular, um, you know, indigenous cultures have absolutely got all kinds of interesting ideas about how to organize society and deal with social and environmental issues that colonizers didn't listen to for some reason. <laughs> and then here we are all these years later. And it's like, yeah, maybe we could actually learn something by paying attention to like, you know, what was being done before uh, all that good stuff happened with the colonizing. Okay, cool. Well, that sounds really interesting. And on the BIPOC issue as well. Yeah, actually, you know what, that brings up one last question, if I can uh, toss it at you, if you don't mind. 
So what is your magazine's approach to the sort of diversity, equity, inclusion equation? Because I have been thinking about that a lot with my own publication. I've been talking about that a lot uh, privately and on the podcast with other editors. And it's, it's interesting. Everybody has their own approach. And I'm very curious if you're comfortable discussing it. Like, how do you guys sort of make sure that you don't publish an issue that's like all, you know, white guys or all this or all that? Like, how do you, how do you tackle like keeping it diverse, but also like not letting someone in just because of who they are, not because their writing, you know, is strong? Like, how do you, how do you navigate that? So we have a balancing act. Part of that started with um, who Justine hired, because that's very important. A lot of times you'll find that you have lit mags that call for diversity, but then when you look at their masthead, it's not diverse. And so it's very hard to have full on diversity if you don't have diversity within your staff. And then the second thing we do is a lot of times people will you know, on our website, we say we're definitely looking for own voices. So oftentimes you have authors who will disclose, you know, whether they're like Chilean or African or whatever. And so what we do is we actually have like a massive spreadsheet and we enter the stories and we enter like where the author's from. And so when we have our planning meetings for our issues, what we'll do is we'll make sure that if we pick someone like from Africa or whatever, that we also pick someone from somewhere else. And so um, that each issue ends up becoming diverse that way. And then to your question as to how do we do it to where we're not picking someone just because we also look at it beyond the culture. We also look at it as how they're writing as well. Because one thing you might have is you might have a writer that is writing an own voice but the thing that we're always cautious of is the tone in which the writer is writing, because you can have someone write own voice and be hateful. And we don't want that. That's not something that our magazine advocates for. We advocate for respect for one's own culture and for other cultures. And to have something like that would go against our purpose. So it's definitely a combination of, you know, hey, this writer is from here, but it's also based on the story and the quality of the writing that they've sent us as well. Yeah, I mean, that comes back to something I, I've been thinking and saying to others, but of course, it's always good to check yourself, right? I think that's part of the whole DEI thing as well as being keeping your mind open and listening to others. And I uh, I feel like when I've had people say to me like, oh, well, you know, just aren't just focus on the stories being good. Like, who cares about the other stuff? Just don't, you know, just don't be racist. I always kind of think, well, OK, but like that implies that the quality of the stories, like wanting good stories and wanting uh you know a diverse lineup in the magazine are somehow like at odds or that they cannot be too parallel concerns you know i i feel like hearing what you're saying it sounds like for you guys like it's parallel like you care about both and both have to be present and both are very important you know uh one does not have to take hierarchy over the other uh would you agree with that or how do you, how do you feel yeah i would agree with that and then um one practice what we have too is for instance if there's an author that we really liked that we published in one issue we'll usually wait for a couple issues before we publish that author again just because we want to have a constant cycling of like new voices and we want it to be fair and equitable so i definitely agree that we do look at both parallels and we do we do a pretty great job about balancing the two cool all right well thank you i really appreciate you giving me input on that i appreciate it can be a touchy subject all right. Well, honestly, I, I've had a really good time and I found this all really fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me, Brandon, especially considering that I unwittingly rousted you out of bed at an early hour on a Saturday. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> 
Oh, no, it's okay. Um, because I love talking about the magazine. Um, I love what we stand for and I love working with it. And I'm so excited that uh, we're almost at our second year already. The time went by so fast. So I'm very grateful for you reaching out. And then, um, yeah, I'm excited. All right. Well, uh, again, this has been a lovely conversation. And hopefully maybe uh, when uh, other members of the staff are available, we can have you guys all back for, you know, talk about how that second year went. You know, maybe a year from now we can do a check-in with Solar Punk Magazine. Yeah, I would love that. Yeah. And in the meanwhile, for people who've heard, you know, you speak and gone, yeah, I want to check this out. uh, Where can they find Solar Punk Magazine? So we are just about on every social platform. Um, We're on Twitter. We have a YouTube, we have a TikTok, we're on Discord, uh, we're on Facebook as well. Definitely like contact us on our social medias. For the most part, on Twitter especially, we have open um, direct messages. I'm very open to people like reaching out to me and asking questions. So you can feel free to reach out to me. I'm Atoller Rights on Twitter. And I'm always posting about Solar Punk Magazine as well as Justine, who's one of our editors in chief. Brianna, editor-in-chief, and Moshi posts as well, as well as uh, JD, who's our poetry editor. So feel free to reach out to us. Feel free to go to our website and look at our issues. We're on Patreon as well. A couple of us have written and contributed content on there. So feel free to check it out. Feel free to contribute to our Kickstarters so that we can continue to publish and present great material and information to you guys. Uh, yeah, okay. So it's good to know about all the social media accounts. And if people just want to like go straight to the website, I'll link to it in the show notes, listener. But it's always good to hear it out loud. The URL is solarpunkmagazine.com. Got it. Awesome. All right. Well, again, thank you so much, Abrana. Like I said, I, I think uh, we'll have to have a, a solar punk check in a year from now. I think that'd be pretty fun. And yeah, good luck with uh, you know the the special issues and just the whole the whole endeavor going forward next year. I'm rooting for you. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing your Sword and Fantasy um, magazine take off Cheers. and any other endeavors that you have as well. That'd be really great to see. Thank you very much. So I'm Writing a Novel features original intro and outro music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it or checking out any of the other ways you can support the show by heading to so I'm writing a novel.com slash support the show, which has things like links to our Patreon, Coffee, and PayPal. Thanks for hanging out with me and Abrianna, and I'll see you soon. 